It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. The title of this one is The Agony of Barrenness. It's a, it's a very unique meditation that we're going to have today in regards to prayer uh, because at first it seems like a, a strange, I mean, even the title is like The Agony of Barrenness. Uh, in, in the Old Testament especially, uh, a barren woman, that's, that's a shame uh, to, to not be able to bear children and so much of a woman's identity was found in her uh, children. And so I mean, there's no greater shame that a woman could ever bear than to be barren. And so it's interesting when you study the history of what we would call the seed of Christ. Christ is the seed, the seed that was uh, prophesied about in Genesis as the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, then all throughout the history of, well, uh, nations and, and peoples, so you see this seed, and so which then ultimately, you know, through Noah goes through uh, Shem and then uh, all the way uh, through to Abraham, and then that seed line goes uh, through uh, Jacob and then his son Judah. And then you see David ultimately being promised to be of that lineage. And then his son, or different sons, it splits off and goes one towards Mary and one towards Joseph. It's a kingly line and then a bloodline. And that's what we see in, Gen- in, in Matthew and Luke. Uh, we see the genealogy of that seed. But in that genealogy, in that lineage, there's a very unique attribute, and that is barrenness. The amount of barren women in that lineage is quite something. And so it's fascinating that what does Jesus Christ and the fullness of Jesus Christ come out of but barrenness in a strange way. And so that's, that's why this is a significant study in understanding prayer. So yesterday we talked about persistence. And this is something that many of us, many of us have likely struggled with in our praying, it's not that we don't know to pray, it's that when we start praying and we don't see a result, we have a tendency to let go, and mainly, it's because we don't want to presume. Obviously, God, maybe you don't want to do this. And so we let go, when in actuality, God says the opposite. He says, and when it seems that no one is answering, keep pressing. (laughs) So it's opposite, actually, the way that we usually think. We don't want to be rude. I mean, God, hey, God, if you don't want to do that, I don't want to just keep begging. I only want to ask if you wanted to do it. So, hey, you know, excuse me, but I'm going to stop now. And he goes, what are you stopping for? I've asked you to keep pressing your plea until you get it. And so this idea of persistence, I'm going to call it the essence of fervent prayer. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So fervent, what makes a prayer fervent? Well, it is persistent, it presses, it doesn't stop, it has that warmth of soul, that heat behind it. And so as a result, that would be the fervent prayer. The persistent prayer is a good way of describing a fervent prayer. So we're going to go back in time. Uh, This is in the uh, book of Mark, and it's going to be a story of Jesus. Uh, He's in Capernaum. 
and he's in a house. And this house is filled with people, and then all around the house is filled with people. Why? Because people know that Jesus is there, and when Jesus touches a man, he heals him. And so all these people come, and they just want to get close to Jesus. They want to touch Jesus. And what's interesting about this story is, you know, out of all the stories of people that Jesus heals, uh, we don't know many of them. We just know a few, but everyone that came to him, he healed. That's, that's one thing we do know, and that's why I mentioned yesterday when we were in our class, I said, well, that is except for Lazarus. Lazarus, there was a little delay in that process, which is an interesting dynamic. Anytime there's a, uh, a unique focus of the cameras of Scripture, because Scripture, for many of us, we think it's just a huge book. It says so much, and yet I would say in studying it says so little. It says only that which is necessary. And you could see that all throughout the text of Scripture. There, there are times when the, the, the camera crew of Scripture, is, uh, the Holy Spirit says, come on, come on, guys, bring the cameras in. Let's zoom in on this. And it catches even an intimate conversation. It catches the thoughts of an individual. And then it will cover decades and not cover anything. And then it will zoom in on this extraordinary moment where impossibilities are standing in front of an army. And then you, you, you're you know, leaning forward with bated breath to see what will happen, and all it says is, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day. That's all you're giving me, God? That's all you're giving me? He says, that's all you need. So it's the master of understatements is what the Bible is. It only says what is necessary. So when it says something, that matters. So when it reveals a miracle, when it zooms in on a miracle, it is important that you take note. It's also important if it zooms in three or four times in the Gospels and you see the same one over and over again. It's like, hey guys, I think God's trying to tell us something. Because remember in the end of the book of John, uh, the Gospel of John, it, it says if all that Jesus did was written down, the world could not even contain all that would be written. Okay, and so that means that what is written is very micro. Uh, it's very small next to what could have been. So what is written has great weight. So in this story, we have a zoom in of the camera. The, the Holy Spirit's like, hey, bring in the camera crew. Let's catch this. So I just wanted to you know, lift this scene up to that level so you take it seriously here. And again, he, speaking of Jesus, entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come near unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason you these things in your hearts? Whether it be easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. 
That is a tremendous amount of detail for one story compared to all the other stories. In other words, God is zooming in. He's giving us a detailed account of something. So I want to break up this story into some of its pieces that affect us. Because oftentimes we will read just a story in Scripture and go, hmm, interesting. But in actuality, the reason it's being given is because it's profitable to us for the formation of our own spiritual life. What would this do to help us? Well, it's interesting because we have a house, and in this house is Jesus. And we know that if you can get to Jesus, there's healing, there's life. And that's a key truth in this. But uh, everyone else that is standing around that's in the house and outside the house can move on their own. They have legs and, and they can function. But we have a special situation here. We have someone who is paralyzed. They are sick with their palsy, as I put quotes around that. Okay, in other words, their body doesn't function. They, they don't have legs that can walk. And so there are four, presumably men, that pick up this one that is sick with the palsy, and they have a job to do. And their job is to get that one that is sick with the palsy to the feet of Jesus. If they can get him to the feet of Jesus, guess what? They have confidence, they have faith that Jesus will heal them. Okay, now there's various ways I could break down this to show you that that's the case. It was actually Jesus looked upon the men that were carrying and saw their great faith. And isn't that interesting? That's what he was responding to is the faith of actually the ones that were carrying the man. That's an interesting uh, little twist on the story. But in this story, what we have is a barrier. We have an obstruction. We have a difficulty. That it's not just as easy as that. And so what these men must do, catch this, is persist. They need to break through barriers that other people don't have to go through. It's like all these other people are just standing there waiting. But this group has a load that they are carrying. Spiritually speaking, we call this a burden. You know, you know in prayer that you receive a burden? I don't know if you've ever had a burden for prayer. And I know that may just be language of some certain denominational group, but it actually really resonates with me as far as a term because that's a good way of describing it. If you've ever had it where you just care deeply about something and it's almost an inexplicable pain, it's like, why do I care so much about this? What is this and why can't I get it off my mind and my heart? Well, here's what I want you to begin to recognize is that when you give your life to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will use your life to do what? To pray. In other words, God is looking for a prayer vessel. Did you know that when Jesus clears out the temple of God, he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And then Paul is going to shock us all by saying, and you do know that you are the temple of God, don't you? In other words, the temple of God is a house of prayer. Isn't that an interesting thought? It's meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so when the Holy Spirit moves in, he clears and turns over money changers' tables. He's like, well, it doesn't belong in here. This is meant to be my father's house. And so he clears it out, grabs his whip, and, and drives some, some darkness out, doesn't he? And then he establishes it for its true purpose. This is meant to be not just the dwelling place of God, but a house of prayer. And not just prayer for you and your circumstances, but for all nations, which is what explains the phenomenon of coming to Christ and suddenly being burdened for other people. Why do I care so much about them? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit who cares about them has just moved in. And he's taking your heart and he's pressing against it. And you're like, ah, 
oh, what is that? Why is it that my mind is thinking about this? Why does it keep coming up to me? Why is it that I can't get away from this? I am burdened for someone. So when you are burdened for someone, pray. That's what you should be doing. Instead of just trying to shoo it away, pray. That's what the Holy Spirit is wanting to train you to do. There are some that for some reason are unable to get to Jesus the normal way. There are some of us maybe even in this room that our sickness and our weakness is like the shriveled hand. And yet when you have a shriveled hand, you can still walk to Jesus. Maybe one of you is missing your right ear, right? But you can still walk to Jesus. But when your legs are paralyzed, now you have a problem because Jesus is down the road in Capernaum, but you can't get there. And so what that demands is that the body around you actually carries that burden. And they bear your burden with you. And by the way, as a Christian, I think all of us, if we were to take a choice, which one would we rather have? Would we rather have a burden, like a problem and a challenge that Jesus needs to touch that we need people to help us with? Or would we rather just be able to walk to Jesus by ourselves? Yeah, I, I could answer that probably for you. We really don't want to draw any attention to our issues, okay? And so we really don't want to be the one sick with the palsy. And yet the one sick with the palsy is the one written about here. In other words, his story comes front and center. It's like very special. And I, I can't speak for you if you have a special uh, ailment that is going to need the body of Christ in a very special way to carry you. But it happens. And it just does. I, I don't know how else to explain it, but in even our, our trainings, our semesters, we see it. And sometimes someone is, quote unquote, sick with the palsy. And they need the body of Christ to rally on their behalf and to lift them up before the throne of grace and to carry them to the feet of Jesus. And it's incredible the story that comes out of it. It's like a greater story than just the average shriveled hand that gets healed. This is something very, very special. So even though we aren't really wanting to raise our hand and say, God, choose me to be the one sick with the palsy. I'd really love to burden the body of Christ and have them need to carry me. It's like, we don't want that. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. No, 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 God, please, shriveled hand, please. I don't, want, I don't want that ailment. And yet, in every situation, this is the privilege of the body. So these four, which are like you and me, they have a burden. They see the need, and they see the solution. You see, I'm not the solution. Those four that are gonna carry that man that is paralyzed, they're actually, in and of themselves, not the cure but God includes them in the process of bringing about the cure. And that's the way we are in prayer. You see, we can't actually change the world or change an individual soul, but God chooses to use us as part of the solution, even though carrying a burden isn't actually what heals the man. Isn't that interesting? Carrying your burden in prayer to the feet of Jesus, you're not the healer, but you're a participant in the process of seeing that person healed. Isn't that amazing? Welcome to prayer. That's how it works. And so what we see in this picture is an extraordinary picture of how prayer works on behalf of those that are weak, on behalf of those that are sickly, on behalf of those that are paralyzed. And so these men bear up this burden and start heading towards Jesus. They know that only Jesus can heal, and so they're headed in that direction. But what they're going to run into is obstruction. Oh, no. You see, this is where most of us set down the poor guy, and we go, I'm so sorry. 
but it looks like you're going to have to make it from this point on your own. The guy's like, my legs are paralyzed. I know. I'm so sorry. But look, at there's, a, there's an impediment. You see, you're going to run into impediment in your praying. You're going to run into resistance in your praying. And what does God say? The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Persist. Press forward. It's operation. Get your burden to the feet of Jesus. If your burden isn't to the feet of Jesus yet, then your job is not done. The reason you were entrusted with this burden isn't to drop them down outside the crowd, outside the house in Capernaum. It was to carry them to the feet of Jesus. I know what you're thinking. Well, how am I supposed to get there? Persist. You see, what these men do is they make their way through the crowd. They're like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And everyone's like, hey, 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 hey. Excuse me, excuse me. And then what, what do we do? Now, I don't know that I would have ever come up with the idea of let's go through the roof. That doesn't sound like something Eric Ludi would be pondering. I would be going, excuse me, we have a very heavy burden here. Would you mind if we cut in line? I mean, that just sounds a little more reasonable to me. But for some reason, because I wasn't there, I'm having to presume that this is a good idea, okay? And it's like, hey, we can climb up to the roof. And I can just imagine the other guys going, yeah, that's a great idea. So, I mean, because to me, lifting a character all the way up to the roof, I, I just picture it like turning sideways and the guy slides off the mat. It's like, how are we going to do this? It's almost like you need scaffolding to make it up there. So I don't know how it all worked, okay, how they got him to the roof. But we're assuming that there's some kind of rope involved anyways because they're going to lower him down. Now, either this is a very low roof, which is a possibility. I, I'm not, I mean, Nathan could make a commentary on what roofs were like. I still picture you know, the, the, the normal American structure roof, which then messes with my thinking. And of course, it's like 30 feet up, and they're like lowering the guy down and lifting him up. It's probably like five feet off the ground. These are like midgets that are in there. And it's, it's probably a lot easier to explain for Eric than it is in my brain right now. But they go to the roof, right? And they, they have this guy in the roof. Now they got another problem. Because they're thinking it's probably some thatch, but instead this one character in Capernaum just happened to put some kind of steel plating down on his roof, which is exactly what we run into in our, in our, in our praying. We run into the crowd, and we oftentimes set down the, the paralytic. So then some of us are like, I'm going to keep pressing. Like, are you sure you should keep pressing? I mean, I mean, God seems to be saying there's a barrier here. Maybe he's not interested in answering the prayer. And some of you are like, no, we're going to keep going. And then you get to the house, and you get this character up on the roof. And then you get to the roof, and it's like, what is this? It seems like it's steel. How in the world are we supposed to get through this? Keep pressing. Keep pressing. You need to bust through that roof. And then you bust through the roof. Now you need to lower him down. There's still more to be done. It's operation. Get him to the feet of Jesus. And when he gets to the feet of Jesus... This is when the miracles start happening. You see, our job is to persist. And that's part of what prayer is. Breaking up the roof. So for many of us, we have pressed and we've been obstructed. So in this, what I want to exhort your soul afresh to do, break up the roof. Don't be intimidated by the fact that you break up one layer of roof and this guy in Capernaum, has another layer. What? And then you break through that one, and there's another layer. You ever had that in prayer? Where you're just like, I know I'm right near the end, and then there's more. 
there's another layer of roofing material. This guy is like layered seven layers on his house. Out of all the houses for Jesus to come to, why did he have to come to this one? And when they could not come near unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed where in the sick of the palsy lay. The tile ceiling over the American church. Okay, I, I've thought about it many times over. Do you know that when you go to foreign countries on missions trips, you see miracles? It's just like we're commonplace. I don't know what the deal is. And so we've had tons of different people from Ellerslie that'll go and they'll come back and they're like, it's really strange. I saw miracles right in front of my eyes. All I did was lay my hands on someone and they were healed. And in America, we're just like, yeah, right. But there's something that is wrong here in America. It's, and I'm going to call it a tile ceiling. It's like this dense, thick covering over us. I don't know if it's a lack of faith. I don't know. It's like, have you ever heard the statement about Jesus in his hometown? And it, it said that he could do no miracles there. And you see, they had a low opinion of Jesus. Like, he came from here. He's not that impressive. And as a result, he could do, do no miracles there. I, I don't think it means that he couldn't do miracles. I'm just saying he could do no miracles there. And I almost feel a kinship with that statement here in America. Like there's something in our low view of who he is that is hindering us from functioning in accordance with this majestic version of Christianity. So there's a tile ceiling, which here's, here's the way I would view it then. Well, that doesn't mean we don't break it up. It's operation get to the feet of Jesus. So as a result, I don't care how many layers of tile there are. It's maybe not thatch. Maybe in the Philippines it's thatch. And you just sort of break through, move it off to the side, and boom, you have the power of God revealed. Here, it's like kink, kink. And you're getting through, the, and you break up one layer of tile, you pull it away. It took an entire two weeks to get that layer done. And then there's another layer. What should we do? I say let's keep persisting. Let's break through this tile roof. And I don't care if it's 40 layers of tile. Let's go after the real thing. There is still only one answer, one solution for us as a church. Just as Jacob grabbed a hold of God and would not let go until, until he got it. And that's the same way it is for us. Let's not stop breaking up roofing until we break through it and can get our burden down to the feet of Jesus. So here's a burden, a classic illustration of a burden in the Bible. So Rachel, you remember she was a second. She was a second wife to Jacob. Strange story, I have to admit. Rather awkward story. Uh, and yet, she's a second. And she's the one that Jacob loved. And of course, that's not to be lost in this whole amazing picture of firsts and seconds. I always feel bad for Leah in that story. It's like the poor thing. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had some compassion for Leah, but she was very fruitful. You have to admit that. And Rachel could not have children. Something's wrong. She's barren. And so this is her burden. Give me children or I die. And so it was to such an extremity that she begins to cry out to God. You see, what you're going to see is that barrenness produces something. It produces desperation, which produces prayer. When you have a sense of barrenness, it actually moves you to pray. <clears throat> now, it'd be nice to think that we would pray without the sense of barrenness, but hey, 
cherish the barrenness if you have it because it's a great movement of soul that takes place. So here's where I would like us to come in. Okay, so maybe our prayer isn't give me children or I die. At the same time, it sort of is because the church of Jesus Christ is so weak today that we are not producing fruit. You're not seeing revival take place where thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands are coming into the church. You know that the church every year in North America is shrinking in size? You know what that means? That means we are not reproducing. That means we are not having children. That means we are losing children. That's not good, okay? That trajectory, I don't know if I've ever heard of that in the church, you know, where we literally start decreasing in number. If each one of us went after one soul a year, one soul, that's it, one soul, we would double in size. See something wrong when we're shrinking? Give us children or we die. It's a desperation. It's a barrenness. We are a barren church right now, and we don't even realize it. It's high time we realize we're supposed to be producing fruit, and we're not. So give us the stuff of old, or we die. That's, that's the return of the Irish elk type of praying. That's, that's the burden that must stir inside of us. So the agony of barrenness, the beginnings of persistent prayer. The barren woman is shamed by her fruitlessness and cries out in anguish of soul. The barren woman is moved to prayer to cover her shame of fruitlessness, begging God night and day for life to form within her. The barren woman is supernaturally, the barren women is what it says, the barren woman, okay, is supernaturally aided through prayer to bear, not a mere human, but a mighty man, a prevailing hero of Israel. Out of barrenness, barrenness is hard. Barrenness moves us to pray. And then what comes out of barrenness is not your normal hero. It's interesting, when you study the lineage of uh, the seed of Christ, and you look at these points of barrenness, what you see is that the greatest heroes of history came out of a barren woman. Okay, that's not to be overlooked when it comes to us. In other words, we could look at the church today and say, what a joke. Just throw it out. Throw it in the garbage. Actually, our barrenness is an incredible opportunity for God to prove his strength at a whole other level. In other words, God chooses circumstances, situations, generations just like ours through which to reveal his power. It's not because of our strength, our virtue. It's because he chooses weakness through which to reveal his power. And we're pretty weak right now. So we're the perfect stage for him to demonstrate his power on. So look at just some of these stories. Sarah, who is the wife of Abraham, okay? She was known as Sarai, remember that? And then she, uh, she becomes Sarah, and she's barren. And that's one of the classic uh, stories that is being un- played out when Abraham is promised to be the father of a multitude. And his wife can't bear children. So there's sort of a problem here. And so that's where Ishmael comes from, and you know we have some uh, problems. Uh, Ishmael is known as a wild donkey of a man. Yeah, we, we don't want to go in that direction. So Sarah, after uh, she's barren until 90 years of age, and then she begets Isaac. 
Okay, that, that's an extraordinary story, especially if you, you understand how significant Isaac is. Isaac is a picture of Christ. In Romans 9, you're actually going to see Christ even referred to as like Isaac is a symbol, just like Hagar and Mount Sinai are linked. You see Isaac and Jesus linked because it's a supernatural birth. It's a supernatural child. It's a seed line. So then Isaac gets married. Now remember, his, his love story is a supernatural love story. You have the servant that goes you know, for multiple days' journey to Abraham's you know, old stomping grounds and runs into Rebekah. I mean, it's a great story. It's a great love story. And then brings Rebekah back. Oh, they fall in love. What a beautiful story. Well, God, when you were going out and picking a wife for Isaac, you should have checked to see if she was barren. Because he just happens to pick a barren woman for Isaac. Now, that wasn't thought through very well. Or was it? You see, what you begin to realize is that God is teaching us something in and through the fact that what is coming forth out of these women is supernatural. You see, women can just have children. That's just normal femininity, right? But God is doing something supernormal here. And so he allows for a barrenness, which then brings about a movement in the soul of desperation. And so Isaac prays on behalf of his wife, Rebekah, and she actually becomes pregnant with twins, and that's Esau and Jacob. So then Jacob marries Leah, yes, and Rachel, and he loves Rachel, but Jacob, you should have thought this through. You should have had some tests run because you fell in love with this woman who just happens to be barren. Doesn't it make you feel like every woman back then was barren? And it's probably like there was only like three in like three generations that were barren. And they just happened to be in this line. I mean, this is just extraordinary. The statistical odds of this are just off the charts. It's impossible for this to be the case. But sure enough, Rachel, Jacob's wife, is barren. And then she begets Joseph, who delivered the nation of Israel. So what you see is out of Sarah comes Isaac. Out of Rebekah comes Israel. Out of Rachel comes Joseph. Okay, we, we have, I mean, these are incredible pictures of super heroic living. And where is it coming out of? Barrenness. So we also have the illustration of Manoah's wife, who was barren, and then she begets Samson. Again, I mean, that's a rather strong uh, result. Hannah was barren and then has Samuel, a prophet of Israel. Ruth was barren and widowed, finds mercy and begets Obed, who beget Jesse, the father of David, whose, whose line is Jesus Christ. Elizabeth, remember her in the New Testament, elderly and unable to bear children after the natural, begets John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said there was no greater prophet born of women. So, you see the superheroes that come out of barrenness? Are we willing to allow God to touch us and to expose to us our barrenness? to show us that we are not producing the kind of fruit that he intended us to produce. That as a church, we're not producing the kind of fruit we were intended to produce. And what should that lead us to? A shame of childlessness. God, give us children or we die. God, we cannot remain this way. God, you intended your church to be so much more. And what, what happens? We begin to pray. 
And out of that barrenness comes forth prevailing, fervent praying. And what's God going to do? I can guarantee you what he will do. He will respond. You see, oftentimes the barrenness is necessary, but we need to recognize it. We're barren as a church, sure, but I don't know that we know it. So as a result, we're not shamed by it. But if we would accept the fact that there is so much more that God intends for us, it would actually shame us. And it would move us to prayer to say, God, please correct this. Correct it in me. Correct it in us. And he will. If shame of childlessness had not subdued these women, what mighty men would have been lost? That's a great statement. If shame of childlessness had not subdued these women, if shame of childlessness did not, does not subdue the church, then we will lose this mighty work of grace that God desires to do in us. So Genesis 32, and Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And he, Jacob, said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he, God, said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. That's a good Hebrew pronunciation. And he said, and he, God, said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. You know what Jacob means? Heel grabber. Israel, God grabber. Isn't that an amazing statement? It's like, instead of grabbing the first, you're grabbing the second. Instead of grabbing the spikenard, you're grabbing Jesus. So what we see is a picture of something here. We see a picture of a man who persists. This man grabbed the heel of his older brother, the firstborn, the flesh, on his birthday, and he got his name. You're a heel grabber. You're a supplanter. You're a deceiver. I mean, what parent names their child that? You are a deceiver. Oh, coochie coo. <laughs> so guess what? That's exactly what he does. He deceives. He supplants. He grabs. And he goes after the birthright. And, you know, finds Esau in his weakest moment and does the little transaction and gets the birthright of Esau. Then dresses up in goat skin. This is one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. And here, here's Isaac. Oh, son, son, you feel like Esau. How hairy was Esau? <laughs> it's like dog skin. You're like, oh, Esau, that's you. I mean, that, that story still uh, to this day is one of the weirdest. But it's a, it's a trickery. It's a deception. He's want, he esteems something good, just like we do in our firstborn life. We esteem the right thing, right? But we're going after it the wrong way. We're going after it in the first condition, in our flesh. But we need to repent of that. We need to let go of all the things we're grasping at here and grab a hold of God. And when we do, we actually find what God has to give us. Your name is no longer heel grabber. Your name is God Grabber. He is overcome by the fact that he has reached out and clung to God and persisted and not let go. He has won a victory. Israel. So to say it correct, this is really cool. Listen to how the Hebrew would pronounce it. Israel. Isn't that cool? 
That's so much better than Israel. Yisrael. You could even say it with a deep, bassy voice. I don't know if the girls could pull that off, but it's fun. It means contender, soldier of God, the prevailing power of God, the power of God unto victory. Grab a hold of God. Let go of all that you have trusted and all that you have been gripping, all other saviors, and grab a hold of God, and you will find a breakthrough. William Booth, this is a great quote, guys. You must pray with your might. That does not mean saying your prayers or sitting gazing about in church or chapel with eyes wide open while someone else says them for you. It means fervent, effectual, untiring wrestling with God. It means that grappling with omnipotence, that clinging to him, following him about, so to speak, day and night, as the widow did to the unjust judge. With agonizing pleadings and arguments and entreaties until answer comes and the end is gained. This kind of prayer, be sure the devil and the world and your own indolent, unbelieving nature will oppose They will pour water on this flame. They will ply you with suggestions and difficulties. They will ask you how you can expect that the plans and purposes and feelings of God can be altered by your prayers. They will talk about impossibilities and predict failures. But if you mean to succeed, you must shut your ears and eyes to all but what God has said and hold him to his own word. And you cannot do this in any sleepy mood. You cannot be a prevailing Israel unless you wrestle as Jacob wrestled regardless of time and aught else, save obtaining the blessing sought. That is, you must pray with your might. Whoo! I think we need a little of that injected back into Christianity today, don't you think? In other words, I would say, what is, if we were to say, what is missing from Christianity? Well, one of the answers, because I'm sure there could be a few, is that. It's the wrestling. It's the grabbing a hold with confidence that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do and I'm not going to let go until I prove it to the world in which I live. Yeah, that. See, that's what we need in our own life. That's what we need in the church. But this is prayer. So when we start talking about prayer, we start engaging in prayer, this is what it looks like. Father, I pray that you would ignite this fire within us. Subdue us with the shame of childlessness and move us unto fervent, effectual, persistent, untiring, prevailing prayer. Lord Jesus, you have what we need and we do not want to let you go until we get it. Give us children or we die. Lord, we must have what you have purchased on that cross realized in our life in the church, and in this generation. Is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. Lord Jesus, we need what you have to offer and only you have to offer. Please, bring it in this generation, in our lives. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.